welcome to a special edition of BioChat, podcast by Apple Technology. And it's Tim Lung, and with me today is lead marketing coordinator of that funnel, Hannah Flaherty. We're going to familiarize you with not only AppFunnel's contributions to efforts in scientific discovery, but also to highlight the direction of ongoing research and help scientists determine how to best leverage their skills to improve global human health and quality of life. As you know, as of this week, the Nobel Prizes in all the sciences, as physiology or medicine, physics and chemistry have been announced. And so Hannah and I, we're going to talk about this today. How are you doing, Hannah? I'm doing well. Excited to chat about some of the great scientific discoveries uh, that were highlighted in the 2023 Nobel Prize. I thought before we started, we with the Nobels, we'd have a little fun and go back and look at the big Nobels that were announced in uh, September. So. Yeah, you, usually this is like the Razzies and the Oscars where, you know, you get all the goofy stuff first and get it out of the way. And then the next day you have the Oscars, in this case, in the science community, as say Nobels in September and then Nobels in October. So we actually wrote about this, the Nobels as the ceremony was being broadcast because they still don't want to uh, do all the people in one room due to the uh, ongoing pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so it was done virtually and it was kind of fun for about 90 minutes. So the theme this year was water. Everything was done with water, even the rock opera that they did <laughs> with their various scientists who were very musically and, and vocally inclined were dealt with water. So yeah, we can talk about the winners. So there were 10 new winners. There's a chemistry and geology prize. This was, uh, I, I won't be able to pronounce most of the names, so I'm not going to try out of respect for them. But apparently the chemistry and geology prize was done for, for a gentleman who, uh, for lack of a better word or, or phrase, they, they determine why people like to lick rocks. And apparently throughout history, uh, there, there's a historical context to this. Like if you don't have a spectrometer or you don't have the right devices, the only way you can really examine an object is to look at it, touch it, or in this case, taste it. And so you can actually wet the rock and using the moisture, see like the details of the rock. And by tasting the rock, you could see how acidic or basic it is. So that that was kind of interesting uh, to me. What do you think of that? Have you ever licked a rock? I can't say in my memorable life that I've consciously chose to lick a rock. I know that I've like taken my thumb and like wet my thumb and wet it. Like if I'm at the you know, a walk and I want to see some of the cool details just because I've spent a lot of time on the beach and I know that wet rock means more detail into the pattern of the rock. But I used to think as a kid, people licked rocks because they must be salty. Probably again, because I spent so much time at the beach, but I guess it's cool that it's because there were weren't the same analytical devices so you know details and 
sometimes comp I always thought that was fake I'm, I'm not gonna lie like in tv when you see someone like 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 a rock and then they're like this is xyz rock from this time period I'm like you can't know that by licking a rock you like how many I guess I didn't realize how many other rocks they would have had to have licked to know the taste of every time period of rock but tv is tv so yeah, I'm glad you reminded me of that because I always uh, noticed that when cops were, you know, trying to sniff out drugs and stuff, instead of using their dogs, they'd like dip their finger into like their their bag of sugar that's supposed to like be crack yeah. or PCP, and then they'd lick it. They're like, oh yeah, this is totally pure Colombian grade crack or whatever. <laughs> so and you're like, how do you know? Good. How do you know unless you've tried all the other types of all the drug? <laughs> it's all it's it's silly, but I guess I guess it's fun to know that people just enjoy licking rocks to help their profession. It's interesting for sure. I'm I was very interested personally in the literature prize, which is you uh, the like repeating of words and how that phenomenon in people can be so interesting because when I I've had that problem where where you say something and it sounds wrong and then you just say it over and over and over again so I found that one kind of interesting yeah I do have the cognitive thing where you know like I spoke in English for most of my adult life as I'm an immigrant and I kind of had to sink or swim but uh, then there are certain words that you just kind of think of you know like you know the meme where they, they ask men, like, how often do you think of the Roman Empire? Well, for me, it's not very often. But uh, sometimes when I say a word, just like this word sounds really weird, like the word keep. Like, why do you say it that way? And then you just keep on going and going until it's familiar again. Uh, the public health prize is probably my favorite, albeit uh, kind of <laughs> the most invasive because uh, Dr. Sungming Park of Stanford University actually invented a smart toilet. So, you know, everybody poops, right? Because everybody eats. It's, it's like the book, you know, uh, yeah. one hump camel has a one hump poop and so on, right? But why not have a toilet that can scan your biomatter and just tell you whether you're healthy or you could potentially have a specific biomarker that could predispose you towards like some kind of cancer or other uh, disease. So like every time you go, whether it's number one or number two, it'll scan your your waist and tell you, okay, you're fine. And the weird thing is that it will actually scan your uh, your anus. And there there was a snippet on the Ig Nobel uh, a broadcast where he actually showed like a panel of, I, I guess, buttholes. <laughs> and and I, I was extremely surprised that they didn't blur those out. But as the gentleman says, don't waste your waste. And it's uh, actually like it's goofy and it's potentially invasive for people who are really, you know, protective of their personal data, including the medical data. But at the same time, having a toilet that records your potential, you know, biomarkers as they change throughout all the times that you're you're going to the restroom seems kind of important. And I, I hope that there's a way that they could legally implement this because I can see a lot of problems. And so did the inventor, like there's a, like a 
bunch of privacy issues. Yeah. But uh, it, it could be potentially very important, right? Everybody goes, so might as yeah. well. Don't waste your waste. I feel like for me, and this may be just because I am a biologically female, the first thought I had was like, you could potentially detect pregnancies like long before you're even thinking about it by accident. Like accident, like that would be interesting because you can tell through urine samples. And so if it's testing things like that, that could have interesting implications. But I guess on a larger scale, it would be good to know if there are changes in what your health could look like uh, based on your waste. Yeah, but I, I feel like for me, <laughs> there would there would be a lot of privacy problems, a lot of data collection. I mean, a lot of people don't necessarily even want to do things like 23andMe. I guess like there'd have to be a super secure data base where this information was going. I feel like the real stop for a lot of people would that there'd be just pictures of their anus in a database somewhere, like every time you go. Uh, I feel like that would stop me personally. That's a lot of a lot of pictures uh, that I wouldn't want ever out there for anyone else to see, even the scientists, to be honest. Yeah, yeah maybe like turn that part of the toilet off. <laughs> Yeah, maybe if it was like public, that part of the toilet could just be be removed and the the scientific part could remain intact. I, I feel like it could be good for. Well, I say that, but then you would want I guess you could also just use timestamps because I could see this being used. If it was like a perfect system in maybe doctor's offices where you already have to collect samples or like hospitals, but then you'd need to know like who went where and when. <laughs> so I don't know. A lot of cool things. It's got cool. It's got cool long term implications if it wasn't so uh, dangerous for some people's privacy. That's for sure. Yeah. So one that I thought was really weird at first and then it, it just made me think because that's what the Nobels do, right? You laugh and then you think about it. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a couple of Japanese scientists and entrepreneurs who decided to make electrified chopsticks and drinking straws and forks. And I was like, why would you want to shock yourself when you eat? And then well, as they explained it, it made sense because uh, essentially the shock is actually changing your ability to perceive taste. So you know how sodium is a big deal. And right now, like I'm getting older, so I'm trying to in limit the intake of sodium. Mm. And when you don't salt foods, it tastes weird. Like if you get used to low sodium, uh, say progressive soups, it just doesn't taste right. So you do need a little bit of seasoning and salt. So what these guys have done is they're allowing people who potentially have health problems like hypertension to have low salt foods but if you just apply a little shock to your cheek and your tongue now it tastes good again because now it's a little salty or it might be a little more sour or something like that so uh in a way they're raising awareness for a proper health and nutrition while making sure that the food actually tastes good because that that's the realm of health foods right like yeah. Sure, they're healthy, but do they actually taste good? Do I want to eat them? <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting. For sure, it has fun, fun use, and you know, 
I have you I guess a lot of people a lot of these prizes are likened to licking things have you ever licked a nine volt battery I guess <laughs> I don't think I, I have I don't think I've ever done that like if you try to lick one I guess you'll you'll feel a sour taste because uh, those batteries are you know they're firing electrons and I guess the countermeasure is a proton and when you detect protons you detect sirens so mm. that's what you're supposed to perceive, but uh, I've never actually done it. Yeah, so, me neither. Can't yeah. say I have. But I think it would be a good if it, well, I guess it's being released to the market soon. So hopefully it's got all the approvals and it's not shocking people too hard. But I wonder if you shock too many times, will that, you know, decrease your tolerance for being able to perceive the salty or whatever nuanced flavors you're looking for in these health foods? What do you think? That's an excellent question. I mean, we are electronic by nature, like our nerve impulses and the way we regulate our heart and muscles, those are essentially electric impulses. So there's some electricity inside us. I don't think they're necessarily shoving a cattle prod down your throat to get you to taste. So I'm not entirely sure what the what the eventual damage of something like this is, but that is a good concern, and you know it's it's a good thing to raise. And like you said, like they they probably would need to figure out the safety of this uh, whatever Japan's version of the FDA is. They they would need to make sure that these were properly tested to make to ensure that uh, you know do everlasting damage to your tongue because you know not being able to taste food seems like it would suck the joy out of life yeah i actually knew uh someone when i was younger my friend's uncle who got into a vehicular accident and lost his sense of taste and he just said that at that point food was just more of a necessity and it was really boring to eat so he never cared what he ate and he was a pretty skinny person because of that because he just didn't really want to eat unless it was uh entirely necessary so that'd be sad if you uh, if you got like the temporary relief of being able to taste low sodium foods and have them feel regular and then one day you just lost your sense of taste entirely Ooh, that would stink yeah so we're gonna say goodbye to the Nobels for another year i hope that next year it's like in person because you know i'll be fun to throw paper airplanes with like thousands of other people and uh, hopefully that means that Apple will fly me out to Boston so I could cover it in person. <laughs> That'll be yeah, maybe hilarious. we could both go a nice yeah. trip to yeah. the egg nobels. You know, let's throw some paper airplanes. But we're uh, nice. switching our attention to the cream of the crop, as it were, the Nobel Prizes. So, you know, usually they're done in order. So Monday is physiology and medicine. Tuesday is physics, and then Wednesday is chemistry, and then I'll go literature, peace, and econ. Uh, we won't have time today, because they haven't announced them yet, to cover the last three prizes, but uh, we can cover the science prizes. And the first one is like super dear to all of our hearts, because we lived through probably the worst pandemic in over 100 years. 
uh, in the COVID-19 uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, pandemic. Lots of people were affected, hospitalized. Uh, many people died, including over a million in, in uh, the United States alone. But so this was identified in 2019, uh, late 2019. By 2020, around March or so, we were ordered to stay at home and we had to do so until like, I, I guess, uh, the summer or e even more. It was it was pretty crazy. I, I forgot because it's been so long. It's like basically it was three years, but it was like the longest decade of our lives. Right. Yeah. Uh, but shortly after. You know, by like December of 2020, they had started approving some of these early vaccines. And by April of 2021, I, my family and I were able to get vaccines because of uh, the work by this year's Nobel Prize winners. So we have doctors Catlin Carrico and Drew Weissman. They are both stationed at the University of Pennsylvania. And they I guess they were photocopying papers one day and just Kind of ran into each other and said, hey, we have this idea about mRNA as a potential therapeutic. And the interesting thing about mRNA is like if you understand the innate immune system, so me being an immunologist, I can tell you a little bit. Uh, if the body detects, you know, signs of infection from a virus or, or a bacterium or maybe a fungus, uh, usually that means with little bits of genomic material floating around. So if you just have regular mRNA floating around the bloodstream, the immune system is going to attack it. It's going to have inflammatory response and it's going to be kind of bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. But in this case, uh, they decided, hey, is there a way we can mask the mRNA? And so what they did is they took the mRNA that would normally code for like a viral protein or some other uh, thing that tells you, hey, this came from a bacterium. And so by chemically modifying the, the uh, bases on the mRNA, now they've effectively masked it from the immune system. So now this mRNA can be absorbed into cells within your body and presented as antigen to prime your immune system. And that's, you know, we, we got the, either the Pfizer shot or the Moderna shot uh, if we got the mRNA vaccine and it hurt our shoulder for, for a couple of days and we felt sick for a while. But these were producing like real time proteins using that mRNA. And by doing so, it was conferring us immunity. So the fact is that this took like 20 years for them to perfect the technology. They had started doing this for MERS, which is the Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus, uh, and Zika about a decade before COVID-19 hit. And so this, this was a developing technology. And by the time they got to COVID-19, like they could really rapid fire turn out these vaccines. So usually a vaccine takes like several years to figure out. This one took like maybe a little more than a year. And that was incredibly uh, critical to the fact that we could actually get out of our houses. <laughs> yeah, it was nice to be able to venture out into the world. And I'm glad that this vaccine technology is available. Um, it just it helped to put. I feel like a lot of people's minds at ease about uh 
in taking it during the COVID-19 pandemic, just because we were also used to the previous vaccine that, you know, would inject some part of of virus that was somewhat live. That's how always it was explained to me as a kid. And, you know, like, oh, you're putting like when you get the flu shot, like you're putting the flu in you. But it's OK, because it's not the bad flu that will hurt you. And I felt like now that I'm an adult, like reading about mRNA vaccines, put my mind at ease a little bit about the future implications. And it will be easier potentially to get more people to take their vaccinations, you know, so you can save others and yourself from viral spreads during cold flu and other seasons. So hopefully that's good. And I will say the COVID vaccine absolutely destroyed my knees, which is very random. But each time I got it, my kneecaps felt like they were solid, like concrete, but also made of glass at the same time. It was the worst side effect from the vaccines. Yeah, I I guess it it was incredibly effective for us anyway, like for whatever reason, we've been sick, like I'm sick now. It's fortuitously not COVID. So like I haven't actually contracted it since the pandemic began, or at least I don't think I have. I've never, it may have might have had it when before like the rapid tests were uh, out, but I've never actually been like slammed, like you know, felt like I was hit by a bus or anything. So you know, in that way, I guess the vaccine for me was preventative, and I think you've had COVID before, unfortunately, but you're still here, so yay, vaccine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I got my first vaccine I think it would have been June of 21 and then got my booster in December and then right around the time I could have gotten another six-month booster if I had so chosen I got COVID instead uh June of 2022 and that was miserable and as someone who is immunocompromised I was very nervous about catching COVID throughout all of the pandemic so I did my due diligence of getting the vaccines but I was glad that I took them because I felt like the health implications for me could have been a lot worse had I not necessarily taken the vaccine uh, when I did get COVID but it wasn't as terrible as I thought it felt awful it lasted for two and a half weeks with like terrible symptoms and then my symptoms decreased and the effect on my respiratory tract like was felt for a while, like the shortness of breath and the tightness in my chest. But I am good now, and that's what matters. You're right. <laughs> you know, you, you survived thanks to vaccines. <laughs> yes. Not not having stuff like polio and good too. Yeah, that's definitely a yeah. perk of living in the 21st century. So the next uh, prize on Tuesday was the physics prize, and uh, like the first first prize, I, I've noticed that this this is happening a lot because you know I blogged that hey, there's only been like four women ever who who have won the Nobel Prize in physics, and two of them I think were Curies. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, this this is a pretty big deal. So this is now 
if you understand chemistry and the way electricity works, it's usually because of the flow of electrons and the jumping of electrons from one atom to the next, or the forming of bonds through to like multiple pairs of electrons between atoms. So that's that's the way chemistry works. Uh, with this particular innovation, though, they are able to use super fast pulses of light. Uh, this is a metric prefix that I did not teach the kids because uh, we went all the way down to nano or pico, and then that was about it. This is called an attosecond. An attosecond is 10 to the negative 18. So this is a billionth of a billionth of a second. So it's super fast. Like you, you cannot even process these because nerve impulses aren't fast enough, right? Uh, in order to figure out minute changes, like less than a minute changes within your atoms or molecules, uh, these three Nobel laureates in physics this year generated attosecond pulses of light. So they're, they're ultra fast and you can actually image the movement and the change of, uh, of behavior of an, an electron using this technology. So this is M. Louis of Lund University of Sweden, Pierre Agostini of Ohio State University, that's the Ohio State University in Columbus, and mm. Frank Krauss of Max Planck Institute. They were equally award, awarded the Nobel Prize because of this groundbreaking uh, technology. So you, you are actually imaging in, I guess, real time. Uh, you probably have to slow it down, like you know, the slow-mo guys on on uh, various YouTube channels so that you can actually see where these electrons are moving. So, uh, you know, they, they're basically opening the door to exploring like chemistry and biology at real time scale. So now you don't have to actually visualize it in your head. You now have the technology to actually visualize these at the subatomic level. And that's super cool to me, even if I don't necessarily understand the principles involved but it, it's just like if you can slow down time that much uh to, to understand a natural process that's just super cool yeah i like you said like i don't entirely understand the technology involved but the overall gist of it is really cool i think like you're saying like slowing things down like everyone says the speed of light and you know nothing goes faster than the speed of light um and so it's cool to think that we can slow things down to encapsulate that phrase into something that's more manageable i think that's pretty cool i i personally enjoyed um reading in her's interview uh that when they contacted her uh that she was basically like i'm kind of busy I'm teaching right now and the guy the uh person interviewing her was like oh but like isn't this so thrilling and she's kind of just boiled it down to like this is my work um it took many years but it's my work it's not anything crazy to me and then and when and Lua went right back to like teaching and I think that that is such a fun thing. I saw on Twitter that I um, posted a photo of her stepping out of uh, the classroom that she was in to take the phone interview and then going right back. I feel like that's very, very interesting and, and entertaining to me that 
I don't know. The level of humble, I guess, just being like, yeah, this is my work and I have other things that I continue to need to do to continue my work was a fun she, attitude. She is very, very dedicated to her job. And I wonder if the students in the classroom knew what was going on because I'm guessing they're plugged in. So they, they probably would have known and given her a round of applause because, you know, that that's what happened a lot. So like I, I was reading uh postdocs uh blog a former postdocs blog about how like when carolyn bertozzi won last year in chemistry like they basically shut down that entire part of the <laughs> of the lab campus and had a party but you know at least she was already in sweden that was local time and at a decent hour most of the time these guys are woken up at like four or five in the morning and they're yeah. like oh by the way this is somebody in sweden and you just won the nobel prize and you know, <laughs> that's kind of awesome. But at yeah. the same time, maybe, like, maybe wait till the morning so that they're more lucid. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it, it was nice. I think I also saw when I was looking into this a little that um, Drew Wiseman said that he and Caitlin Carrico generally are already awake from 3 to 5 a.m. emailing each other new ideas. So it wasn't like a sleep disturbance for him to get called about the Nobel Prize. And I thought that was kind of funny. It kind of reminds me of you, me, and Sally communicating, just like randomly waking up in the middle of the night and being like, Sally, I have an idea. Or me messaging, like, or you messaging me and being like, Hannah, check out this post. And it kind of made me laugh. I guess uh, sleep disturbances and 3 to 5 a.m. ideas are across no matter what uh, industry you're in. The last prize that we have time to cover today at real time is the chemistry prize, and this has to do with quantum dots. So I first learned about this uh, in graduate school in the early 2000s, mid, mid the late 2000s, actually, uh, because so the first time I, I think I was, and this was like maybe a decade after one of the Nobel laureates had figured out how to actually produce these, uh, mass produce these. And they were starting to be thought of as a way to better visualize uh, Western blots because you know how when you do a Western blot, usually you have a primary antibody, you stick a secondary antibody on it, and the secondary antibody is usually connected to a fluorophore, right? In this mm -hmm. case, the secondary antibody is now connected to a quantum dot, and you, you can actually visualize these a little better because, for whatever reason, their quantum uh, properties allow them to be illuminated a little more. And uh, so this year, the three who were awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for figuring out quantum dots and discovering how to mass produce them for broad applications uh, was Alexei Ekimov. He's a Russian entrepreneur uh, and scientist who has his own like nano crystal company. We have Louis Bruce of Columbia University and also Mungi Buendi of MIT. And I believe uh, Dr. Buendi is like the first name. If you look in Wikipedia and you look up through all the names, they're all mostly either European, they're East Asian. Some of them are Indian, but most of them are not African. So this gentleman, I think, is a French-born Tunisian. 
And that that's really cool. Like this is the first time I think somebody who actually uh, had has African descent was awarded a science Nobel Prize. And that's like super uh, cool and historic for the Nobel Committee. I think they've been trying to like get more diversity in their awardees, uh, not just in like the humanities prizes, like the literature prize, you know, like Toni Morrison won and so on. Uh, there, there's uh, the Peace Prize where every now and then you'll, you'll see uh, somebody from an African nation will win deservedly the prize. But very rarely do you see that for the science prizes. So this is really cool, along with the two women who were awarded this year in uh, medicine and physics. So, yeah, the, what do you think of that? More representation, yeah. right? I mean, it's good to see things moving in a more diverse direction, for sure, in awarding prizes to those who deserve it, regardless of race, ethnicity, or gender. Um, I'm glad to see the Nobel Prize uh, awarding body is looking for the best of the best in regard to experimentation and not just focusing in on what a certain select group of scientists has to offer. And congratulations to the two female winners and Mungai Bawandi if for, you know, taking these for breaking their own versions of the glass ceiling in the science categories. Uh, it's I mean it's it's just gotta be cool to be awarded a Nobel Prize. So imagine being like the first person of African descent to win a science prize. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah, hopefully it does open the doors. Like the quantum dots is actually really cool though because like their their properties are governed by the size of the dots. So there's like, you know, big dots might shift red and small dots might shift blue or maybe it's the other way around but uh i i think like if you resize them a certain way they might actually uh make other colors as well so they they're used in a lot of like new computer monitors and tvs they're used in certain led lights they're potentially used in uh, solar power and illumination, surgical illumination, biological sensors, like, you know, uh, more sensitive Western blots. So there's a lot of things that they could potentially do. Like they've only really scratched the surface with this particular innovation because like, you know, Dr. Buendi actually just barely started producing these in bulk in the 90s. So this this technology is like less than 30 years old. And that's kind of kind of cool to think that this is a more recent technology that's continuing to gain steam and gain new applications. Yeah, I I think that it is definitely, it's one of, well, actually between mRNA and the QLED technology, those are things that I'd actually heard about in my everyday life uh, to a considerable amount. Like I didn't necessarily like I hear about, you know, the speed of light, but I didn't necessarily have much background into the uh, the prize that was based in the electrons, the, you know, with the quickness, as you wrote. Um, but QLED, like recently I was just looking at televisions and reading up on like the benefits of QLED technology in 
why you might want a television with QLED versus regular, whatever the regular LED is. So it's interesting to see the people behind those technologies because generally most of the public isn't going to research who created the quantum dot, but now they're Nobel Prize laureates. So maybe people will look into it and learn more and get some interesting science behind their practical everyday use items. Yeah. Well, I know you have to get to a show with yes. some of our potential customers in Texas. I actually have to walk the dog because the sun has not risen yet, but he, he probably needs to go out and do some stuff. Probably not as smart to go help pee on a bush, but. Uh, I hope, the, hope the bush isn't getting that level of data. If so, <laughs> the Ig Nobels need yeah. to go back. <laughs> it was 5G bushes, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for hanging out, everybody, with uh, Hannah and myself, and we hope you join us again next time when we will explore another exciting topic about bioscience research and careers. BioChat is a production of Apple Technology, hosted and edited by myself, Tim Murray. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. You can find our various socials in the show notes link to Dr. Beaker's page on AppleWorld.com, where you can also find a vast catalog of biological reagents and services. If you wish to contact the podcast directly for an interview opportunity or any comments, or to inquire about AppleWorld's quality products and services, please send a message to service at AppleWorld.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.